Our reading is from 1 Samuel, Samuel 17, chapter 17. And I'll be reading a section starting in verse 24, and then we'll skip a few verses, and I'll read another section. So, 1 Samuel 17, 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. And will give his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and take away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the names, defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. I'm going to go to verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give your dead bodies to the host of the Philistines this day, to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. The word of the Lord. So, you know, there were a few bigger movies that came out in 1984 than, than Footloose. Kevin Bacon's portrayal as Wren McCormick, of course, really sort of put Kevin Bacon on the map. But uh, one of the best scenes in the whole movie was where Wren finds himself playing a game of chicken on farming tractors, which he ends up winning almost by accident. But what makes the scene so great and so memorable is the music that they chose. It came from 80s pop star Bonnie Tyler, and it was the song, I Need a Hero. And I want to put some of those lyrics of that song under the microscope this morning uh, just to for, get the conversation started. She says, where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? I need a hero. He's got to be strong and he's got to be fast and he's got to be fresh from the fight. Up where the mountains meet the heavens above, out where the lightning splits the sea, I could swear there's someone somewhere watching me through the wind and the chill and the rain and the storm and the flood. And for those of you that I've just implanted that song in your head for the rest of the service, you're welcome. Here's the point. I, I think I could produce a dozen different songs that show what our modern conception of a hero really is. And what I want you to simply pick up on is this, is that there is a strong instinct to have as our conception of heroes this, this untouchable idea. They're powerful warriors, Teflon-coated supermen, who swoop in and can do no wrong, and at the very last moment they save the day. 
I think there's a sense in which this longing for heroes is really inherent in all of our senses of humanity. You know, whether on the one hand we, we dream of being powerful people who save the day performing our own acts of heroism, or we find ourselves in a deeply powerful sense of fear at a time in our lives, and we call out for someone else to save us. Heroes are indispensable to our lives, the concept of heroes. But we've been making the point really quite some time now that the Bible oftentimes subverts our ideas and conceptions and shows us a different way. And we come to one of the most famous stories in really the entire Bible, the story of David and Goliath. I mean, if there ever was a hero tale, it's this one. Don't you get chills up your spine when David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who mocks the armies of the living God? And we look and say, okay, now I know what this passage means. This story is about Goliath and the, the giants in my life that need slaying. And so therefore this morning we all need to go out and be like King David and slay the giants of our lives. Well, what's interesting about that kind of interpretation of this passage is it's really centered on me, isn't it? The story, therefore, is about my need to slay my giants and get my act together and accomplish my goals. But what Brian and I are trying to convince you of in First and Second Samuel is that's not what this story is about. It's not even a story about us at all. And so any interpretation that leads us back to ourselves should be immediately suspect. So I want to take a look at how the Bible conceives of heroism through this story, and it may be that the conclusions surprise you. Three points. The first one is this, heroism failing, heroism mocked, and then heroism achieved. Let's dive into that first one, heroism failing. you got to realize exactly what's going on in this passage. And by the way, it's going to help you to have 1 Samuel 17 open while we look through this because I'm skipping around a lot. The battle lines have been drawn between the Israelites and their arch enemy, the Philistines, across a wide valley well inside Israeli territory. This back-and-forth fighting has produced no clear winners, and so the Philistines suggest a different way, an alternative plan. And you get it in verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Highlight that word champion there for a second. Because in Hebrew, that word translated as champion literally means the man of the between. In other words, it was this regular practice in that culture uh, where warring armies who would, would, who would choose a representative, someone who would fight for you. And the two of these men in between would meet on the field of battle, and whoever lost the battle would sacrifice their side to the other as slaves. So, of course, the stakes were pretty high, right? And so the Philistines choose as their representative this giant person. Now, this is where you find out why it was that we studied Genesis back in the fall. Do you remember when we had our big discussion on Genesis chapter 6? While there, we found out that in this early primordial history of the Jews, they believed that there was an unholy union that existed between fallen angels and human beings, producing a race of people that were giants. These were the great fear mongers of these early Jewish people. So much so that by when the time the Jewish people prepared to go into the land, the spies that went into the land, this is all in Numbers 13, find out that there's giants there. They're terrified of them. Even the next book, when you get to Joshua and they come to conquer the promised land, over and over again, Joshua begins to encounter a group of people known as the Anakim. 
and he comes in to drive them out. So by the time you get to Joshua 11, we find out that most of them had been driven out, but the remaining ones occupy themselves in a couple Philistine towns. Joshua 11:22 says, "Only in Gaza, in Gath, ding ding ding, and in Ashdod did some remain, some of these giants." Okay, look, put that all together, and the majority of scholars believe that Goliath is one of the sons of Anak, descended from this unholy seed of Genesis chapter 6. But there's more than just Goliath's intimidating uh, size, I think, that's, that's occupying the Jews' thinking at this point. Because in the Jews' primordial history, they saw these people as terrifying monsters. And so there's a very sense in which Goliath represents to the Jewish people the epitome of their fears, everything they had wrestled with up until that time. It's important to establish because it really does explain the condition of Saul's army in this moment. Go back to look at verse 11. It says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul, of course, had lost his will to be the king that God wanted him to be. And so now we see the outworking of what his leadership looks like. It means his people are embraced and gripped in fears. We've touched upon their number one fear. I think it's worth pausing here for a moment and asking this question. Your fears, in many ways, are one of the most efficient windows into your heart. Are they not? That is, when all of a sudden we talk a big game about who I am is really about my passions and my pleasures, that's fine until all of a sudden we are standing in front of a freight train that's barreling down our lives towards what I care about the most, and our hearts light up like a Christmas tree, don't they? People's fears are different, of course, but death always seems to loom large. You hear reports of people having near-death experiences where they get in that moment where, I don't know, they're in a boat and the water is rising and they think to themselves, well, this is it. This is how I go. But what's interesting is, I heard a preacher one time say that death, interestingly enough, is really not the ultimate fear, not by a long shot. You know, there are lots of soldiers in the ancient world who, rather than face the indignity of falling into the hands of their enemies, would commit suicide. I always think about uh, Lieutenant Dan in the movie Forrest Gump, who's so angry at Forrest for saving him because he was supposed to die in battle. In other words, the greatest fear was thinking of themselves as lacking dignity and respect and worth, not death. And so it's different for each of us. My wife and I, two weeks ago, were watching one of our favorite modern westerns, uh, Open Range. It's great Kevin Costner and Robert Duvall classic, in my opinion. There's a great line that Kevin Costner looks up when he says, you know, there's things that eat at a man worse than dying. What are your fears? Because Saul, Saul's reaction to his greatest fear is shown in his inability to do the right thing, which is one of the reasons why you know you've met your biggest fear. Because when it rises up and all of a sudden your public stature, your real public failure, your reputation begins to be threatened, you will go to links that other people will refer to as heroic in order to deal with it. That's how we know when we've met our fears. When you live for approval, typically, you're not going to know it until your mood begins to rise and fall with the success of your children. So much so do we know how much we packed into that particular thing. Goliath stands as the embodiment of Jewish fear. So the question is, is what would it be for you? What would, you, what would cause your heart to fail you, according to this passage? 
Because usually it's only when your real focus in life gets threatened that you begin to experience what it's really about. So there's a point in this first one to say, listen to your fears because they'll lead into your heart like not much else can. So heroism failed. Secondly, though, heroism is mocked. This is where we got to zoom in on uh, Goliath. And the cool thing about this story is there's a ton of what we call biblical theology that show in these different hyperlinks from all over the Bible, especially in 1 Samuel. Because one of the features that people mention, almost all the commentators talked about how weird it was in Hebrew literature to get a description as long as we got of Goliath in the first part of this chapter. It's unusual for them to be that focused on people's physical appearance. But again, this is where it helps to know the original language. If you go back to verse 5, it says that Goliath, quote, was armed with a coat of mail. That's a very interesting, perfectly adequate translation of that word. However, the translation is a little bit of an extrapolation from what the word literally means. The word there, coat of mail, literally means scales. In other words, Goliath, it says, was covered in scales. One commentator I read said, David did not only face a giant, he also faced a snake. A snake imagery comes out. And once you see that, you start to see exactly what Goliath really represents. Interestingly enough, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 11, Saul, the failed king, fights against an Ammonite king whose name happens to be Nahash. Well, guess what Nahash translated literally means? It means snake. Now you see the contrast it's set up? Saul, King Saul, faces the snake after his anointing as king. And of course, now David faces a snake as well. Saul fails, but David succeeds. You know, Saul tries to give his weapons to defend David. Remember, he says, oh, take my armor, take all this. David's like, no, I've been out with the animals in the fields. I've dealt with the fields. I've dealt with those animals out in the wild through my shepherding. Well, that's interesting because in the Garden of Eden, man was told to rule over the beast, but he was defeated by a snake. Now, someone who has ruled over beasts comes to defeat the snake. You see the themes moving back and forth? The question for us, though, this morning is, why does David succeed where Saul, and really Goliath, actually, in, in, uh, as well, fail? Well, because I think we have to see that Saul and Goliath represent a fundamentally human way of dealing with fear. The point is, use your power, they would say. Use your technology. All the descriptions we get of, of Philistine technology at that time are meant to enhance the fact that that's what Goliath knows he can trust in. Saul, of course, is the tallest and the most beautiful. Use your good looks. Use your charm. Because the human way to deal with our insecurity is to begin to finesse our creativity until we've pulled ourselves through. We find a way. We look on the inside for strength. Listen to your inner voice, we're told. You can do it. It reminded me, of course, of a powerful conversation in The Lord of the Rings between Gandalf and Saruman, his, arch, uh, his sort of arch enemy, sort of uh, alter ego. Saruman has decided that the only way to defeat the great evil in Middle-earth is to join with it, align with it. And so he makes this big speech where he pitches to Gandalf uh, this sort of alluring sense of, of coming alongside the power instead of rejecting it. Listen to this. He says, a new power is rising, Gandalf. Against it, the old allies and policies will not avail us at all. This then is the choice before you, before us. We may join with that power. 
It would be wise as the power grows. It proved friends will also grow. And the wise, such as you and I, may with patience come at last to direct its courses and to control it. We can bide our time. We can keep our thoughts in our hearts. Listen to this. Deploring may be the evils done along the way, but approving of the high and ultimate purpose, knowledge, rule, order, all the things that we have so far striven in vain to accomplish, hindered rather than helped by our weak and idle friends. Listen for the language of power, because you're not paying attention if you don't hear the echoes of this in your own heart, in all of our hearts. Because we all fear and struggle with fears of losing that one thing that would finally plunge us into darkness. And it's at precisely those moments that there's a lure in front of us to grasp at power to affect our own ends. Sure, we might have to fudge a couple of the rules along the way. I mean, I'm not saying that we had to act as Christianly as we possibly could. But you know what? When we're in control... We're finally going to make things so much better around here. That's what power instructs us in. But the sin in that internal monologue is ultimately that we've decided to work for ourselves. And that's the, that's the tragedy of the modern conception of a hero. They're always motivated by self-interest. And therefore, the weapons that they conceive of are man-conceived and man-made, which is the reason why they're destined to fail. Because in these counterfeit versions of power, we see them, they see them from the very beginning. It was there with the snake in the garden and our original parents. And in the end, we realize it never truly saves. It doesn't work. It fails us. Only a true hero can do that, right? Which brings me to the third and final point, and that is heroism finally achieved. I heard Tim Keller say one time on this passage that the key to understanding the David and Goliath story was trying to figure out who you're supposed to identify with in the story. Most people, you grow up thinking, I'm supposed to identify with King David, right? I want to put myself in David's shoes and slay the giants in my life. But that's really not helpful, and it's contrary to the text. The text is going out of its way to say, you cannot slay this giant. It's not going to happen. You don't have the strength in yourself. He cannot be defeated. This is not anything that you're going to use your personality to finesse victory into. I think, though, the inertia is to push us towards identifying with Goliath as well. You see, Goliath looks and says, in the wake of, of all of this fear, we're going to go the power route. All you got to do is push and manipulate and rework the things that are going on around you and enslave the people around me while I do. Our offices can't stand to work with us. But you know, we justify it all the time by saying, look, sometimes we got to use questionable means to get to the right ends. We certainly think that politically for sure. And Saruman could not have said it better. What is our lust for power? The truth is, Keller says, who we should identify with is the Jewish army. Look, think about it. David doesn't go rushing up to the soldiers and be like, come on, fellas, we can do it. Muster up your courage. I know we can. It's not what he says. David isn't saying, follow me through imitation. Rather, what he's saying is, I'm going to help you through imputation. What do I mean by that? Well, remember, Goliath is the Philistines' champion. They're man in between. And David is literally the representative of the Jews. David wasn't just fighting for the army. He was fighting as the army. That's absolutely key. 
Because there you have David who is literally standing between Israel and their enemies. And what's at stake is not just David's future, but it's also Israel's future. This outcome of this battle is going to be their outcome. And you know what? They weren't called to fight. They were just called to watch. Sit back. Watch this go down. But their future hung on David's shoulders as he walks out there to face Goliath. David is such an unlikely hero, isn't he? He's so little. He's vulnerable. He's weak. And then all the while, he's down there representing the entire army down in the valley of death. Look, Kent Hughes says that verse 32 of of, uh, 1 Samuel 17 should be labeled the gospel according to David. Look at verse 32. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. See the two pieces? The first part of that is do not fear. I heard somebody say one time that that was one of the first things that all the angels say when they come with a message from heaven. Do not fear. All good news begins with that. The good news begins with the knowledge of not being afraid. But second, the reason why you don't have to be afraid is because I will fight for you. I will be your representative. That's the gospel. Interestingly enough, Moses would say something quite similar all the way back a couple hundred years earlier when the Israelites exit from Egypt and they suddenly face the wall of the Red Sea, but they got the Egyptian army behind them and they're trapped and they cry out. And Moses in Exodus 14, says this. He says, fear not. Same thing. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. I love how he ends this. And you have only to be silent. He's saying, shh. Watch. Look. See. It's not a command to sort of whip something up. Be more creative. Work hard. Step on those people as you do, but get it done. That's not the Christian way. Look, the Bible, the inertia of the entire message of the Bible is trying to get you to realize that you are unable in yourself to control your fears. That's the message. Only the good news comes to to those people who follow Jesus. And Jesus is not one who helps those who help themselves. Ugh. No, he's there to help the, he's here to save to the uttermost. I'm going to channel Kurt Presley at this point from one of our old seminary professors who can save from the uttermost to the guttermost. Why? Because it is the nature of this God not to use powerful things to change the world. Let me say that again. It is the nature of this God of the Bible not to use powerful things to change the world. He confounds the wise by using the foolish. How? Jewish commentator Robert Alter says this, David does not win in spite of his weakness. He wins through his weakness. He wins because of his weakness. One other commentator said this, the message of the Bible is not that we are called to save the world. Its message is that we have a Savior. That's our message. The message of 1 Samuel 17 is not that we are called to be like David. No, 1 Samuel 17 is good news that there is a David. That's the difference. And so let me say emphatically, if I've not said it already enough times, that the meaning of the story of David and Goliath is not to go out and slay the giants in your life. Or, well, you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. It's not it. What it means is, is that you and I By simple faith in Jesus, 
have a champion. There is a man in between, in between us and all of our greatest fears. And it's not good news to face those fears with simple mind manipulation, like, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. It's not the Christian way. It's wonderful news that says, look, I have secured for you a salvation that cannot be touched even by the worst of your nightmares. Over the break, I read an article in, in, in um, Popular Mechanics, of all things, <clears throat> about one of the greatest disasters in American history that happened in the, the, what's known as the Johnstown Flood. It happened in 1889, May 31st. There was a collapse of what was known as the South Fork Dam, and it released you know, an entirely almost man-made uh, lake of water, some 495 cubic feet of it, into this valley and as it goes into this valley, it begins to scour the sides of trees and houses and mud and everything else, all the way on its way down to Johnstown, a little industrial city of about 30,000 people there in the Pennsylvania Allegheny Mountains. Nearly 2,200 people died. I put it up there like with 9-11 and, and, and Pearl Harbor and those kind of disasters. What was interesting, though, is in those early newspapers, witnesses would describe this 60-foot-tall wall of water that had by that time turned into literally a black hill racing through the valley, loaded with debris and of the forest and the railroads and the homes that it had destroyed on its way down there. And you think to yourself, what must that have been like? Could you imagine standing there and seeing that kind of wall of fear coming at you? But here's the deal. That's what it feels like when you finally face the fear. The fear. Because here's the deal. It's not the nightmare that's the problem, is it? It's the nightmare behind the nightmare. It's the thing that that failure suggests about you ultimately that really drives it, does it not? You know, it's not just that she rejected me. It's that now I fear that I'm completely unlovable. I've always said that fear is a little bit like a rock that gets dropped in the middle of a pond and the ripples go out and out into every nook and cranny of our hearts. And only God can find you in those crannies. You want to know why? Because pain always wants to totalize. It always wants to get out everywhere. That's the meaning of depression. It's not just that I lost my job. It's that now I have no more hope for the future. I no, no longer have any dignity. It's not just that she wants a divorce from me. It's that it's all over and I want to die because of it. It's not just that I blew out my knee and lost the scholarship. I don't even know what the point of my life is anymore. It's the nightmare behind the nightmare that's the real fear. And so here's the deal. That breaking of that wall churning towards you is the suggestion that it's not just a small hurt, but it's a big hurt. It's the ultimate hurt. It's the nightmare behind the nightmare. But here's the deal. David was just a picture. Because God sent eventually the ultimate David, who, guess what, was weak. He was little. He was vulnerable. And he stands up there as the man in between. And he didn't just save us in spite of his weakness. He saves us through his weakness. He didn't just save us from physical death. He saved us from eternal death. <laughs> he saves us from what makes death fearful, or the way Paul will put it, where death's sting is. He didn't just save us like David at the risk of his life. He saved us like David at the cost of his life. 
So that when he's raised, raised again from the dead, he looks at us and says, I've removed the nightmare behind the nightmare. See, now you know what you can do? You can face the little nightmares. You're going to be okay. And Christians for generation after generation after generation have brought that confidence in to the way they deal with their lives. And they bring a sense of calm and they bring a sense of poise to where we can repair and put things together. Look, he went into the valley of the shadow of death. And he came out victorious, which means that you and I have a real hero. <laughs> it's not like the heroes we would have picked, but it's the only real hero. And if we know him, then we can survive the nightmare because he's taken out the nightmare behind the nightmare. It's pretty good news. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, bring us into that. Let us celebrate this around this table as we eat and as we drink to your glory asking that you would inhabit these, these simple elements that would uh, draw us together as a body of redeemed people. Would you do that this morning and lead us into that great joy that we know awaits us on the other side? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.